Happy Easter. Lots going on these days between First Communions and feast days, and of course we are still in the season of Easter. Today on Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano is going to talk about the Divine Mercy, which we just celebrated a couple Sundays ago. Um, and in the second segment, he'll focus in on the Mass and help us understand the Mass better. So we have a great episode ahead for you. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, or keep us right here on your phone with the Veritas mobile app. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. And Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship, and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's so good to see you. Happy Easter! Happy, Happy Easter. Easter season! Yes, mm-hmm. thank you, Excellency. Mm-hmm. You've mm-hmm. been very busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's good. Busy, idle mind is the devil's workshop, Mom used to say. So this is good, busy is good. And too, too busy is not good, but I'm, I'm managing, like you. You yeah. have a lot of things going on. <laughs> My schedule feels full, but uh, but I f- always feel sheepish saying that to you because no. your busy is a different kind of busy from other people. No. My mother used to say, the Lord tailors the cross to the point where it is personal to you because he knows what you can carry. Hmm. Same thing is true for work. The, the Lord asks us to do what we can to help build a kingdom. But what we do is different because our capacity is different. There are some people I know who run circles around me and what I do, right? So in the end, as long as we're busy about the Lord's work, that's all that matters. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. amen. So, uh, you know, I wanted to talk today, Excellency, because uh, two Sundays ago was Divine Mercy Sunday. Correct. And um, in our house... The divine mercy is really, really dear to Rula. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm less so, I, but she's she loves it and she's really devoted to the divine mercy. And but it's it, it is a cool thing. There's a saint and a locution and a chaplet and a devotion. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, it is. It is. It's it, it's interesting. And um, you know, doing research because for for the benefit of our listeners, of course, we decide the topics in advance of our taping, right? So it gives yes. me a chance to do research. And many times I do need to do research. For for Saint Faustina, there were some things I knew about her. I recite the chaplet every day. But doing the research, there were some fascinating things that I learned about her that actually kind of maybe in some way gives an expression to, the, to what Divine Mercy and her devotion to it really means. Okay. Right? So, for example, we know that St. Faustina is Polish, right? She lived only 33 years no different than St. Catherine of Siena, all right? Another towering figure 700 years earlier 
who was instrumental in convincing the Pope to go back to Rome from Avignon, right? She also lived 33. And she died right before the start of World War II. So she died in October of 1938, and the proximate events to World War II were in 1939 into 1940, right? So she was poor. Family was extremely poor. From our best knowledge, she had four years of education which was a stumbling block for when she decided she had discerned religious life, many of the congregations would not take her. The one congregation that did take her asked her to pay for her own habit. Now, again, it, it was a test of resolve and perseverance, but she worked as a cook, she worked as a gardener, she worked as a housemaid. So we're talking a person who is in her humility. Um, there's no pretense here. In her poverty, there's no pretense. And one of the things that I take away with spiritually is that is some of the prerequisites to understand divine mercy. Right? It's from our humility and from our poverty do you actually appreciate what the gift of divine mercy is. You know, and she wanted to be a religious from when she was young. I believe it was as, as early as seven years old, she had discerned this, this, this desire, this calling. And her parents didn't want it. And then she had that moment of quote-unquote conversion when she was at the dance. And the Lord said to her, I'm waiting for you, but you're not responding to me. And go. And she did. She got on the train and she went to, to Krakow and she's wandering around looking for the first church she arrives at. And then eventually the priest gave her assistance in convent and the convent said no until finally the convent that took her in, which is where she eventually, you know, consecrated her life right, as part of the community. So she began her religious life at basically 20 years old. And from the earliest, she had this deep intuition that led to personal revelations of our Lord to her and his great desire to offer mercy. And in her diary, which is extensive, right, it was, it was created at the prompting of her priest spiritual director, who at the beginning thought she was crazy. Right, yeah. Right? It, it ordered a psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> Your Jesus is talking to you. Really? <laughs> and then he, be, he himself was converted, mm -hmm. right, to the fact that this is really authentic. In her diary, you know, I would love to say I've read the whole diary. I have not. The, experts, the excerpts that I have read are beautiful, and they're very personal in some places, and they're very direct about the need for conversion and coming to the merciful heart of, of Christ. And it all centered eventually around the Sunday after Easter, which is now Divine Mercy Sunday. Yes. Interestingly, um, when you look at the, 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 the revelations, if I could use that word, the, 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 the inspirations and the intuitions that St. Faustina received, including the gift of the chaplet, which occurred in 19... 35, so it was three years before she died. There were three intentions behind the chaplet. It's to obtain mercy oneself, 
is to trust in Christ's mercy and to show mercy to others. So, who is the protagonist of the whole thing? Is what eventually became John Paul II. He was the one who moved the cause of Faustina forward, even though the Holy Office, in the year when I was born, for everybody's interested, 1959, they banned the devotion and the reference to, for 20 years. And they banned it in part because there was this, they believed there was too much of an emphasis upon her as the person, as her person, and there was this sense that you could get remission from your sins without necessarily going to the sacrament, which I'm not exactly sure where they got that idea from. But if you take a section out of context, perhaps you could arrive at that erroneous. But when you look at the whole thing, it's clearly nowhere near there. But she was basically... Um, banned for a while. And then she was rehabilitated, right, in the 70s. And JP2 then moved forward her canonization, and she was beatified on Divine Mercy Sunday. She was canonized by Pope Francis on Divine Mercy Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, right? So it, it so that second Sunday of the mercy of Christ is is now very much in the life of the church, right? So it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable story of poverty, humility, uh, simplicity of life, openness to what the Lord offers, even when you're maligned, even when it's misunderstood, and even when, you know, even after your death, the church, like Padre Pio, what they did to Padre Pio, they did to Saint Faustina. Yeah. You know what strikes me as you tell uh, St. Faustina's story, Excellency, is, you know, you, you, when you highlight, we're all attracted naturally to, you know, the rich, the powerful, the smart. Um, I think that's, there's something in our human nature that naturally attracts us to that. But you think of, you said she was poor, she was uneducated, she was humble, she did the, the menial tasks around the convent, and then... You know, I immediately thought of like Joseph of Cupertino and Andre Bassett and Solanus Casey. And John Biani yeah. and a whole slew of others. Okay. Yeah. Now remember, Faustina could read and write, obviously, because she wrote a diary, right? But she wasn't she didn't have any degrees or any of that's right. Right. So so what so why? Why is that important? Why? Why are we attracted to the rich? Why are we attracted to that? Why? What do you think? What's the spiritual motivation there? Or lack thereof? Um, I mean, I guess it's that it's it's the pull of the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. Not really. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Don't mind me. I'm moaning, <laughs> groan all the time. Not to worry about me. <laughs> no, you know. Uh, I mean, because because the world and there's nothing wrong with being rich and smart and you know all that stuff. Of course not. But it's a burden. It's mm. a spiritual burden. It's a temptation. It's not neutral. In the spiritual life, being wealthy brings with it a great burden because you are open to temptations that those who are poor do not have. Now, you could overcome those temptations, but to think that they're neutral in and of themselves would be, I think, um, would be naive. Yeah. 
You see, I would say this, whether it is a question of your possessions or your privilege and position in life, whether it's your gifts and talents, whatever the riches are, it's not just material riches. The temptation spiritually is to think you are the origin, author, and promoter of those riches. When you don't have them, okay, then you could despair, which is this temptation in poverty, mm-hmm. is to give up or become angry right, or negative. But if you're able to, 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 to manage that, if you are wealthy or you are blessed and you recognize that you're not the author of those gifts, you are not the origin of those gifts, and those gifts are to benefit you and the, your loved ones and those around you, and that your possessions don't possess you, then they can be a blessing in the spiritual life. Because in the end, God is in control of all that, not you. And when you're poor, if you don't have them, and you free yourself from the bitterness, okay, and the anger that comes to a person who believes what the world wants you to think you should have, and in that surrender, God is in control, not you. In both camps, that is what I think Faustina had. Faustina had surrendered her life to Christ. Yeah. And that unlocks the power. The, I guess the other thing that, uh, that struck me as you, were, as you were saying that, Excellency, was that um, it's easy to overlook people like her if you're not... Yes. You know, if you don't... Yeah. Yes, right, right, exactly. And so what's the image of Divine Mercy? How would you describe the image, Steve? Well, so it's, uh, it's Jesus. Um, uh-huh. uh, and it looks, to, to me, it always looks like he's stepping out. The, the background is dark, so it feels like he's stepping out of darkness. Mm-hmm. And then he's got the, the red and the, and the white lights coming from his heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do they represent, do you think? Um, uh-oh. Uh, so it, the, the blood and water that came out when, uh, when he was uh, stabbed on the cross? Yeah, was it Longinus? Yes. Soldier? Yes, the Roman who soldier. Who pierced his heart? Right, right, on the, right. Blood and water, which are traditionally um, understood as the fonts of baptism and Holy Eucharist. Right. So... The entree to the heart of Jesus, which is the font of all mercy, the entree into that is through his wounded side, into his heart, which is, Faustina sees, is through the remission of sins and through the, both the remission of venial sin when we come to, to Eucharist and the reception of the body and blood of Jesus. So... Christ's mercy is in the forgiveness of our sins and in the nourishment we need to become faithful disciples in the world. In many ways, um, if you were to ask, uh, or you were asked, what does it mean to say God is merciful? How would you answer that question? And it's, it's, it's not an uncommon question for young people to ask. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, to me, 
it means that um, despite the fact that I could never do anything to merit being with him, he still takes the extraordinary and immeasurable step to come to me and offer me life with him anyway. And I guess it's up to me to accept that or reject it. But uh, that and that love that he shows me is not um, a sentimental love. It's mm-hmm. a it's a sacrificial love that you can see when you look at the crucifix. Right. Right. So in effect, it is a recognition that God enters into the poverty of the human condition or in my life. God's mercy meets me where I'm at, not where I should be. Mm. So that's the first part of mercy. And as you said, because we don't earn God's love and we, we, we don't have to prove our worthiness to have God's love, then it's always present there. Even in the worst of moments, even in the most the greatest debacles we are face, right, of our own making. So that's where love does. That's mercy. But the second piece to that is it doesn't come to us to wallow with us. It comes to raise us up. There's almost an element of a rescue. Right? Yes. In so much as when people go in and they, they're in these... T- well, for example, um, it was maybe a week ago that I left Brooklyn to drive back to Stanford on Monday, and there was a terrible accident. Oh my God, terrible. And this, this little van was on its side, blocking two lanes. And you know, typical reaction, well, you're in the traffic, you don't know what's going on, you, you know, you're thinking these terrible thoughts, all this mm-hmm. other stuff, getting yes. angry and patient. And then when you're there and you see it, you feel so bad. First of all, you feel bad that you reacted that way, and then you, you pray for the people involved. And yet, there were all of these police and firemen climbing into the van to try to rescue him. So whoever the person was, or persons. Mm-hmm. And that image of, of, of reaching down is the first part of mercy, and then lifting up is the second part of mercy. So you reach down in our sinfulness, we in our contrition through the sacrament receive forgiveness so we can be lifted up. It's in the natural sufferings of life, God's, mer- God's mercy reaches down and accompanies us to lift us up, at least in spirit, if not in body. So in many ways, it's a different reaction than charity to those around us that may be poor or out downtrodden. Because it's only when we give to the poor and we think we're being merciful, it's only half the equation. So you're touching people where they're at, but you're not accompanying them up, out, forward. If you are, that's true mercy, and that's what God does. Yeah. And that's what the cross is. Cross meets us in our brokenness, and lifts us to glory, which is the empty tomb, which is a new life in Christ. Yeah. And don't you think it's interesting this all happened before World War II? 
It didn't happen in the 14th century. It didn't happen in the 16th century. It didn't happen in the whatever century, the third century. It happened in the 20th century, literally less than a year before the start of World War II. Do you think that's coincidence? I no, there is no coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick question. <laughs> so I wondered to myself, what was the Lord... What was the Lord preparing the church and the world for? I mean, we, we're kind of reliving in a different way the same circumstances that we saw unfolding in the beginning of World War II with the invasion in Ukraine and these horrible, despicable, inhumane attacks. Right? So you say, where is God's mercy there? First, people will say, why does God permit it? Well, God permits it because we're free. Mm -hmm. And heroic acts can be met with, with hideous and insidious acts of evil, right? We're capable of both. Yes. But where's God's mercy? Well, we are the agents of God's mercy. So in, in, my, in my humble way of looking at things, or maybe my crazy way of looking at things, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, the Novena, um, is really needed now, given what we see unfolding in Ukraine. Because it's so eerily similar in my mind to the very first months of what happened when all of war, I mean, all of Europe eventually fell into war. Please God, we're not going there. Yeah. But it's the same sort of thing. We, God's mercy is the answer to all this evil that's unfolding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it, right. It's, it's, when you put it like that, Excellency, it's clear on a, on a grand scale that that's true. You know, when you were talking about the threefold message of Faustina mm -hmm. and mercy... It was the second one and the third one, which I wrote down, trust in Christ's mercy and then give that mercy to others on a micro level are, at least for me, all, all, often really difficult. Yeah, to trust. To trust, to trust in Jesus' mercy. Yes. I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Do you really? <laughs> do, do, do you unconditionally? Or is it just because, you know, and I'm being, you know, maybe I'm being too direct, but I, it's easy to trust Jesus when everything's working out great. Yeah, yeah. I, I trust you, Lord, absolutely. <laughs> and when things get a bit difficult, yeah, I can trust you because I can still manage it. Yeah. I think I can find my way out. And with your help and grace, we're going to do it. But it's really difficult when you're in a situation which is totally out of your control. And then what do you do? And what does that trust look like? It's a surrender of the ego. It's a surrender of the will. It's a surrender of my plans and my thoughts and my ambitions and my, and my machinations and my strategic thinking. And it's, yeah. it's like being a child again. Be like the children. Right? And running into the arms of the Lord and say... I have no idea what to do here. Yeah. 
And then it becomes even harder when you trust in Jesus and what he decides is not what you would have decided. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you're in the boat and it is rocking and you feel like it's going down and you're only in the boat because Jesus said, get in the boat and I'll meet you on the other side. <laughs> exactly. Right? right. He told you to get in the... Right, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. And what does it... Let's go just one step deeper, if I may. If I were to ask you, or our listeners, and of course I'm asking myself this question, what is required for me to trust another person? What does the other person have to show that makes me, that makes the person trustworthy? I know, because realistically, you can't trust everyone because there are people out there who don't have our good in mind, right? Yeah. Who don't. Right. So what is it that we have to see or experience or feel or touch that allows us to trust the Lord Jesus? Any ideas? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, uh-huh. I, I mean, especially with when you're talking about Jesus, uh-huh. you need that. Re- you need a relationship, I think, first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like a real, genuine relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me offer another suggestion too, because that's absolutely correct, without a doubt. But who else comes every time we ask? More specifically, who are we that every time we go to the altar and ask him to come, he comes? Always, every time, in every place, he comes. He comes in the Eucharist. He doesn't say, I won't come this Sunday because you annoy me. Or I won't come next Sunday because you didn't give enough in the collection. Or I won't come next week, or I won't come to the 12 o'clock Mass because all you people are gossips. (laughs) He comes, always. 100%, all the time, in every place. So, who else does that? So, in my mind, why would we be able to trust the Lord? Is because He never fails to be there for us. And if you have the eyes of faith, you see that. And if you don't have the eyes of faith, you're going to approach him like you approach everyone else in the world, as conditional. So the strengthening your faith in the real presence has a direct effect on strengthening your faith in the trustworthiness of Christ's mercy, in my mind. Yeah. They go hand in hand. Yeah. Amen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's a great thing that we can all take back to adoration and think about. Right. 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 Exactly. Right. And then the celebration of Mass, which I think we're going to do a little bit in our second segment, right? Yes. Talk yep. a little bit more about the Mass. Right. Yep. Why is it so important? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's then let's take a break and come back and do that. So... This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network, and we will be right back.
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So, Excellency, uh, as you teased before we went into the break, mm-hmm. you know, this topic came up because um, I was having coffee with a man who happens to be a good friend of yours, who mm-hmm. was just, during the course of our conversation, he was on fire for the Mass. And then mm-hmm. it turned to, not lamenting, but, you know, talk of, of how so many Catholics really don't understand what's happening at the Mass, mm-hmm. which made me say, you know what, I should bring this up with, with the bishop, and I have mm-hmm. some questions that I'm sure it will help me and others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like everything else in life. For those of us who have been Catholic since our baptism as infants, we grew up attending Mass and not necessarily have had the training and formation to understand the depth and breadth of its beauty. It's no different than in some analogous way when you have dinner with your family and the depth and breadth of the beauty of a family coming together and sharing a meal and sharing conversation and sharing life can be taken for granted Hmm. unless you give a thought as to why is this important why should we do this because if you don't ask and you can't articulate it chances are you'll do less and less of it and there are many families you and I know who barely ever get together for a meal. So going back to the ecclesial meal, we know the theology. We've talked about it many times, right? We've talked about that at Mass, we are entering into the mystery of the Lord's death and resurrection. So it's a mysterious encounter. We are there to consume the body and blood, soul and divinity if we are able and worthy to do that, if we're ready to do that. But the great mystery is open to everyone, whether you receive Holy Communion or not. 
So let's draw a parallel. Okay. If you and I were sitting on the hill of Calvary or standing on the hill of Calvary and Jesus was dying before our very eyes, you could ignore it. You could be a spectator. You could be a participant. And the same thing at Mass. You don't go. You come and you're a spectator or you're a participant in the mystery. Now you would say, okay, Bishop, so what does that mean to be a participant into the mystery of the Lord's death? Well, you're going to hear me say what I've always said, and that is it's an engagement of the mind, it's engagement of the heart, and it's an engagement of the will in the mystery. It's a surrender to what is being represented. So that every time you go to Mass, depending on the needs you have, which you do not know, but Christ knows, you will come out different, engaged in some sense, in some way, with some part of your mind, your heart, your soul, in a way that will further your path to heaven. And therefore, when you go to Mass, it's not what you think is going to happen. It's not your program. It's the Lord's program. Right? Yes. So, so the very, sta- in my mind, the very stance of coming to Mass is one of surrender. Right? You cut out the rest of life for an hour. And you enter into the mystery. You come and you, you kneel before the Lord in his reserved presence. And you say, Lord, I'm offering myself to you in this mystery before us. Change me for the better so that I receive your body, blood, soul, and divinity as a true spiritual aid and not as, as that which we, I will be held accountable for right? in judgment. Yeah. And that's why there's a liturgy of the word. Why is there a liturgy of the word? Why don't we just do the liturgy of the Eucharist? Do you ever ask yourself that question? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the liturgy of the word feeds us with with the with the word, and then we're fed with the the Eucharist, right? But but it has more than a function just feeding the works. You have a liturgy of the word without Eucharist, and you'd be fed by the word. Mm-hmm. But it's to dispose the mind, right? In part, dispose the mind to the mysteries of salvation, because they all point back. To the, to, 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 the, to the crescendo of salvation which occurred at Calvary. So we hear about Moses. Well, Christ is the new Moses. We hear about David, but he is the, 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 the ultimate reason there was a kingship of David. We look at the prophets, right? When they call people to repentance because when we come to Calvary, that's what we're doing. We're laying our sins at the feet of the Lord and asking for, for, for the gift of forgiveness and conversion and repentance. Which then, if it's truly needed, we go to the sacrament of reconciliation and we abstain from receiving the Eucharist so we can receive it worthily. And in our venial sins, we've asked it at the beginning of even the Liturgy of the Word to ask the Lord to forgive our venial sins in the, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, rite of penance, the penitential rite, which drives me crazy. When you go to Mass and they say, let's acknowledge our sins, and they go right into the, I confess. Well, what, do, what time did you have to acknowledge your sins? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to be kidding. <laughs> 
that, <laughs> that, but that goes to what you were saying before, Excellency, is that it's so familiar to us that it almost becomes robotic and rote, just going through the motions. Right. Even when we're listening to the readings and, you know, the, the priest begins, you know, there, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger and the sons said, give me my share in the inheritance. And everyone kind of tunes out because they're like, oh, yeah, I know this story. But that's actually God talking to you at that moment. Correct. 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 Right. Correct. And when you don't surrender to what's happening, then the message and the food that Christ wants to give you in his word, you are not receiving. Hmm. Again, and why? Because we think we're in charge. We know what's going on. Well, who cares what you know in plain English <laughs> in the end? You think that has eternal value apart from Jesus, apart from the Lord? In what world? <laughs> in what world does that have that eternal value? Yeah. It may have value for you, but the, the great revelation of the modern world is that me, apart from Christ, amounts to zero <laughs> when you look at the mystery of death. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess because... And the the mass is not my prayer, right, Excellency? It's the church's prayer. It's his prayer. It's his prayer. Of which the church is a part. Because hmm. the church is his mystical body. Mm-hmm. Right. So the great offering of Christ to the Father in Calvary echoes and re-echoes through all creation for all time. And when we come to Mass, we are most conscious and we are invited to participate in the great offering of the Son, Christ, to his Father. And we're swept up in that because in glory, we will be swept up into the life of the Trinity. So, so the focal point is the altar. And in the, in, in before the reform, on the altar was the reserved blessed sacrament because there was only the high altar. So that is why I'm very keen and insistent that the blessed sacrament be restored to the center of the church because it is the focal point, both the reserved Lord who is truly the Lord and the place where we meet him in prayer and in reception of the Eucharist. So what I would suggest to people is imagine, okay, the altar to be the rock of calvary so we come to the we come to calvary to either ignore be a spectator or participate and i'm going to suggest we participate in the end for those who do participate who surrender to that whatever to the mystery of what's going on having been fed by the word of God. So that word makes you, dis- disposes you to enter into that act. We literally enter into the act that occurred at the Last Supper when he took, broke, blessed, and gave. So that's exactly what happens in the Lydia of the Eucharist, and that's exactly what's supposed to happen in our lives. We've talked about that before. But how that happens is because you surrender to the mystery there. So if the altar is the rock of Calvary, imagine it that way. Mm-hmm. Another way to imagine the altar is that if the, when the churches were made in cruciform, so they were in the literally, literally in the shape of the cross, going back to Faustina, the altar is also the place when we sit 
with the heart of Jesus. So if you imagine Jesus imposed on the floor plan of a church made in the sign of a cross, then his, his heart is literally where the altar would be. So either way, we encounter what? The mercy of Christ. Yeah. Who reaches, so we enter in, now this is just blows my mind, so we enter into the mystery with all our baggage, with all our faults, with all our sins, with all our limitations, with our history, and all, and he reaches down and meets us there and then lifts us up by offering his body and blood, soul, and divinity as the bridge to eternal life. Whoever receives, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life in him. Right? Yeah. So the Eucharist, one could say, is the ultimate act of divine mercy in the world until we are with the Lord in glory. So, you have an obligation to go to Mass. It's unfortunate we need to use that language. Obligation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because it is a duty of love, not a duty of law. If a person does not believe that it is something worth their time, they've already chosen the first category to be totally uninvolved. So you have the font of Christ's mercy here at the altar, and you decided to go another path. Well, good luck, whatever path you chose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially, I don't think anybody who just listened to what you just said could choose that anymore I mean the way you put it and we're standing there at the foot of the cross at Calvary which is actually what's happening with the representation of the sacrifice uh, it, yeah I right. but the what's rub a, what's is a, here mm -hmm. the rub is here spectator and participant spectator mm -hmm. and participant this mm -hmm. is the rub this is the rub yes okay because if you are not present to be able to receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity. As much as you would want to participate, you cannot fully participate. It's just not ontologically possible. Hmm. Right? Until the body and blood, soul, and divinity is given to you of Christ. So let's look at the sick and the suffering. Part of the burden of being sick and suffering for those who want to come to Mass is that they can't. So they spiritually participate, which gives you grace, and you enter into the mystery to a point. But, you can't, but that is why it's so important that the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and the clerics go to visit these people weekly and give them the body and blood, soul, and divinity. Because for no fault of their own, they cannot be there. But they, they have a right to fully participate in the Mass. Right? Yeah. So... But, but there are those, for example, who, do see, who see no difference between, like even now, post-COVID, you know, watching Mass on, t on whatever you watch it on, on your computer, and going to Mass in person. Well, there is a profound difference because of the limited level of participation you can have apart from the entering into the mystery where you are consumed by and you consume the mystery. I love that. Consumed mm. by and consume the mystery. Mm-hmm.
I had uh, one, of, one of my kids who shall go unnamed while we're okay, on the we'll air. We'll figure it out later. Keep yes, going. exactly. <laughs> People who know us will know who it is. But uh, uh, said to me one, one Sunday, we were trying to figure out which, we were just trying to decide between a couple of different churches, actually, one Sunday, which we don't really do that often. But, um, and this child said, um, which one has the shorter mass? <laughs> and I said, I said to him, I said, you know what? I said, you know the creed that we say at the beginning of Mass? Consubstantial with the Father and the Filioque. <laughs> I said, people left the church over these words, and faithful Catholics died because of these words. And I said, this Mass that we're going to, it's the same Mass of Blessed Miguel Pro and the Korean martyrs and St. Isaac Jogues, the, the martyrs in England. These people mm-hmm. hunted down, hid, died for this mass and you want to find out which one's five or ten minutes shorter it didn't work with him at that oh i said it was him <laughs> at yeah. that day but still i mean <laughs> right but now well, let's but now but but that voice um is echoed and re-echoed hundreds of thousands of times hmm. in front of parents yes. all throughout the church right maybe millions of times for all i know on a sunday so let's parse up that a bit. What's really going on? What is really going on? One could say, well, young people want to be entertained, and you know, and this is not entertainment, this is prayer, and you just got to do what you're told. Yes, I'm sure, but we all like to be entertained. Yeah, there could be an element of that. Yes, they're, they're, they're young people of their age. Yes, and they're going to discover in life that it's not all about being entertained. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that is the predominant reason. I think there's something deeper going on. And I'm going to venture a partial answer. This is not a full answer. This is only part of the answer. That when you are young, you struggle with this. How? How do I enter into the mystery? They're not even realizing they're asking the question. What does this have to do with me? Which is another way of saying, how do I enter into this? Because for me, I feel detached from what's going on. Right? I don't feel a connection. Or you could say I'm relevant, relevant or boredom. Or whatever. I don't feel connected. All right, so does that sound reasonable so far? Yes. So how do we help connect them? Because at 14 or 16 or 18 or whatever, it, they may not know how. We, I'm 63, and there are people my age who may say, I don't know how. And that falls to the community, and it falls to the celebrant, because when the ritual is prayed well, in the right context, they will know that they belong. They yeah. will know, they will feel the connection. Yeah, and that something special really is happening right now. Exactly. Yes. And that's not always the homily, necessarily. It's more than that. And that is where I think we as a diocese, come probably the fall, are going to have to have some very long and hard conversations about. Hmm. Because, you see, you go into the mystery... One Sunday, it may be something the priest or deacon said in the homily that captures your attention, imagination, 
that becomes the entree into the entrance. Another Sunday you may come in and there may be, um, because of the beauty around you, whether a prayer, a hymn, a chant captures your heart, it's entrance into the mystery. Or it could simply be the goodness. Now the goodness, if it comes out of a life of virtue, then it could be just a person greeting at the door who you have a relationship with and makes you feel welcome to a young person. Yeah, I, yeah, and enter in. Or the call to do something to help someone else. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, there may be different Sundays. To, but so I guess my question is, what do we as a church, how are we going to help young people to feel the connection that is their right in baptism? And the onus doesn't only fall on them, it falls on us. So the use of silence at Mass, music at Mass, um, the sacredness and, and beauty of the place, the preparation when you enter into church. You, what we have to do is facilitate every possible opportunity that a connection is made, is my point. Yeah, yeah. Then the time won't matter. Yeah, you know, Excellency, so we actually went to, um, not knowing it would be this long, but we went to a three-hour Easter vigil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Good. But... Um, both of my younger kids, 15 and 12, they were locked in and engaged the whole time, the whole time. And it was because of the, the elements that you just said, Excellency, plus the 2,000 people we were with were all locked in. They knew what was happening. They knew why they were there. It was really, I mean, right. almost miraculous that, you know, one of my kids didn't Throw, have a mutiny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, right. But yeah, exactly. But it was all of that. Everything that you just said. Ma right. Maybe. Go ahead, Excellency. No, no. no I was just going to say the litmus test in my mind is that when you you attend a celebration such as that for three hours and you walk out and don't realize it was three hours. Yes, that's the key. Yes, right? yes. You know, so uh, until we get to that point where every mass that we go to is like that and like what you're describing and you know mm -hmm. how you, mm -hmm. whatever plans you have in mind there's also something to be said for the family preparing for mass ahead of time mm -hmm. so that we arrive in the right state of mind mm -hmm. so can you can you maybe give us some guidance on how we can prepare on the way to mass well there are many ways to do it i suppose i think the easiest and most proximate is that you don't roll in at the second reading. So let's start there, <laughs> right? You know, we have running jokes in some of the parishes in the diocese. Uh, you, I, I look out and I'm so very mad. I say, where is everybody? Oh, they'll be here by the gospel. Insufficient. That is really insufficient. Because I would argue that you need at least, at least 10 minutes prior to the start of mass. Now, one of the correctives that we have to go through is, in some parishes, it sounds as if you're gathering at Grand Central Station. Mm. Yes. That's insufficient in my mind. Because that, when you come in, it's in the, you are encountering Christ in his reserved presence. He is there. 
And in that time, you are preparing your mind, your heart, and your will to enter into the mystery. So you have to, it's going to take a while to set aside all the distractions in your head that you walked in with because that's just life. You're going to spend some time just looking around and if you're in a beautiful place to allow the beauty to speak to you. And even to calm your will, to suspend your will in a sense so that the Lord can guide it. In other words, to your point, a family needs to get to church with some preparation time. And practically for young people, what I would suggest for them is you ask them to pick up the missalette and read the gospel before they hear it proclaimed. Yeah, great idea. And then put the book down and then listen to what's proclaimed. And then you could ask them, what was the difference between the two? What struck you when you read it and what struck you when you heard it? Because mm -hmm. it may not always be the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then, so that's on the way in. Then the only other question I wanted to ask you was about on the way out. And the, yes. the words, the final words, which in Latin were, or are, still are, ite misa est. Yes, go do something. Is what yeah. the <laughs> right, do. basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go do something. Yeah, because uh, ultimately, you enter into the mystery so that you can help foster the kingdom of God, the kingdom whose king had a throne on Calvary. It's to, it's to inaugurate the kingdom in one step. And you do that with every act of mercy and kindness and forgiveness and all the rest. That's how we bring in the kingdom of God. That's how we bring more and more the civic power of God into the world, of Christ mm. into the world. So I guess my question would be, again, I'm now kind of reflecting on your experience. Um, would it be unreasonable for a parent who brings a young person to Mass at Sunday, at the end of Sunday, when you get home, you go for brunch, you have lunch, whatever it is, or Sunday meal, whatever it is, and say, so what are you going to do this week hmm. based on yeah. what we just experienced? Give me one, one thing you're going to do that when you go back next Sunday, you can say to Jesus, this is what I offer to you for the week. And we could do that too, me and you could yes. do that too. Yeah. No, that's an awesome idea. That is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to start this weekend. <laughs> With yeah. my kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to thank me. They're going to call me and say, nice, nice idea, Bishop. <laughs> it's always good to have a bad guy to blame, you know? <laughs> of course. That's, that's my ministry, to get hate mail. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, th I feel like this could be like a 10-hour uh, a class on all the different... There's so much stuff we didn't touch on on the Mass, but it, this what has I been doubt. such a great start. Yeah. Yeah, including the, you know, the walk around the sanctuary. Why yes. do we have the things we have and how we have them and why they're there? Yes, and all the different uh, vessels and vestments. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. that, oh, an idea for, for the future. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's tough on a podcast because you have to, some of it, you just, when you show it, it makes sense. So it's yeah. hard. You'd have to describe it, which you're, you're more adept than I am to, to kind of get into the detail, to paint it verbally. <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll have uh, well maybe it's an, an idea for a video series. Oh, imagine! Then I have but, to sit up straight. Wait a minute, <laughs> <sit up> straight. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's let, let's take a quick break. I feel like this is starting to get unwieldy. <laughs> well, we we'll come back with it with a listener question. 
Uh, you're listening to uh, Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network with Bishop Frank Caggiano. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, uh, interesting question that came in uh, this week. So here it is. It says, Your Excellency, the leader of our synod team told us that Scott Hahn said, quote, We are not the church. The church is the teachings of Christ, end quote. Uh, the questioner said, Can you give us a definition and exhortation of what the church is and is not? Well, that's interesting. First of all, the, that's a very interesting affirmation because I certainly do not believe it's accurate. The church are the believers. It's the assembly of believers. It's the ecclesia, those who are called forth from the world, who form the mystical body of Christ. Through baptism, we're forged into the body of Christ and through the grace of adoption become sons and daughters of God. That is who the church is. And our baptism is confirmed in confirmation and we are fed for the journey of life through the Eucharist. That's how we get fully initiated into the body of Christ. An essential component of who we are is the teaching of the church, the teachings of Christ, the truth in other words. But it is not supplanting the people who are to believe. <laughs> right? So there's two points here. I think that is who the church is. Now, for the synod leader who may have said that, I would be curious, first and foremost, if I were the person who heard this, to go back to Scott Hahn and actually find where yes. Scott may have said it, because I'm guessing it's taken out of context, right? And then once you do your own research, just draw it to the attention of the synod leader because the person who's saying it is not saying it out of malice. It's not saying it to hurt people. So you privately say, I heard you say this, but this is really what is being said to save you the position of having to be corrected in public by someone right. but for your own good. This is what's really being said. Yeah. No one wants to be embarrassed, though. So you don't just do that haphazardly like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great advice. Would it be fair to say that so the church, the church, as you said, is the body of, of mm -hmm. us, and the teachings are there um, at our service? Is that fair to say? Well, the teachings help us to remain who we are, right? So in, in many ways, um, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you could imagine that the life right, is, is the, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, enlivening us, His Spirit. He is the truth that holds us around something that, 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 that becomes the, the essence, the glue of, of our unity is based in truth. And the way is the way to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. He is the way to heaven, and we're going to mm -hmm. walk that. So in the end, the church could not exist without the truth of revelation. There would be nothing to bind us to. On the other hand, the truth is in service to the people who will be saved in him. Yeah. So the church is not the truth. The church is the ecclesia, the assembly, who are bound together by the, by the truth. Right. Great. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we would love to thank Foundations in Faith. 
a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work online at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, thank you again for a great week. And You are most welcome. I always enjoy our conversations, my friend. Mm-hmm. Me too. And uh, would you please give us your blessing? Yes, of course. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, as we rejoice in the resurrection of your Son, we ask that your Holy Spirit bless us in these challenging times. Most especially, bless us with perseverance and courage, with clarity of vision and mind, with joyful hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. I'll see you next week, my friend. See you, Excellency. Ciao.